You may have noticed that we live in a very skeptical era. Some have said, how can we know anything at all? Cynical about the very notion of truth. Others say, who are you to claim that what is true for you is also true for me? You should have your truth and I can have mine. Showing the subjective nature of all truth claims. Others say, why should we believe what anyone else recounts about history? Skeptical about any trustworthy knowledge of that which has gone before us. It's incredibly difficult to deny that we live in a very skeptical era. And that skepticism affects us too. Thomas Kidd is a professor of American religious history at Baylor University and Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And recently he wrote an article in Christianity Today that said this. American evangelicals, that's many of us, seem to have reached a crisis point over the study of history. Especially the history of our own American founding. For for decades, many evangelicals have turned to popular history writers who have presented America, especially colonial and revolutionary America, as a straightforwardly Christian nation. In response, there are other evangelical historians who have mapped out a more complex view of our own history, disagreeing in part with that Christian America thesis. The point of the author, as he goes on in that article, is to say that all of us have become skeptical about certain historical claims. We want to say, prove it. And there's no more seemingly incredible claim than the identity of the man named Jesus. To be sure, few historians, even those skeptical or cynical, deny that there was a man, influential, who lived 2,000 years ago. But the idea that he was born of a virgin, that he was God in the flesh, that he performed genuine miracles, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a substitutionary death, that he rose again in power, that one day he'll return as Lord. Well, that seems fantastical, incredible, not believable. There's not evidence, they say. And yet that is precisely what the Bible seeks to show. The Bible offers four accounts, complementary in nature, that invite the readers, you and I, to consider the claims about and from Jesus Christ, seeking to persuade us that what he claimed about himself in the world was true, that he alone is the Savior and the Lord, that he is the God-man, God in the flesh, who gives life. One of those gospel writers is named Luke. And beginning today and for the next several weeks, the next several months, we're going to be journeying through the first part of Luke's gospel, hearing his claims, reading the accounts, investigating Jesus's life, and considering whether what Luke wrote here is true and trustworthy. And then we have to decide, what do we do with Jesus? For Luke, he says to those who've not yet trusted him that they ought to believe Jesus, that they ought to do a U-turn, a conversion to embrace faith in Christ. And to the believer, 
both then and now, Luke attempts to strengthen and to fortify our faith so that we would grow deeper and stronger in our trust in him. But no one, Luke says, should remain the same after knowing who Jesus is. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, I hope you bring a copy of the scriptures with you. If you don't have one, just raise your hand in the aisles there. You'll see some of our hosts who'd be glad to give you a copy of the scriptures or of our worship program. You can follow along in the notes, gracepolaris.org slash program, if you don't have that in your hand. Uh, Today, it's particularly valuable to have a hard copy of the scriptures because we're going to look at an overview of Luke before we dive in next week into the big accounts of this gospel writer. Today, we're going to examine four areas of introduction in our series. First, the nature and the purpose of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Second, what is unique about Luke's Gospel, the the author, the flow, the substance, and so on. And third, what is powerful about Luke's prologue, the first four verses of Luke chapter 1. Finally, then, we'll come to the end and ask ourselves the question that we should ask every time we encounter this, what to do with Jesus? What do I do in response in light of who Jesus is? Number one, the Gospels, their nature and their purpose. These are testimonies to Jesus's identity. The Gospels are actually not as unbiased or as objective as we might understand the term. See, the writers... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not dispassionate about Jesus. They have a purpose. They have an agenda. They have all concluded that Jesus is the Son of Man, the Son of God, the ultimate King, the promised Messiah, and they want you to conclude that too. They're they're not wavering about the evidence. They are persuaded about the identity and the significance of Jesus. And they want to convince anyone who will consider the evidence that Jesus is all of those things and more. Let me put it another way. The Gospels are not simply biographies of Jesus. If they were, they were terribly written because they leave out about 90% of his life. No, the Gospel writers are evangelists. They have carefully chosen information so that you would be persuaded to see who Jesus is and respond to him accordingly. The Gospel writers are good news writers about Jesus who can save and transform your life, who can change how you view God and the world. So why four? I mean, after all, wouldn't one gospel suffice? Well, that's a question that really only God can answer, but we can uh, offer some good or valid guesses. Yes, one gospel would suffice. But we need to remember that the earliest Christians didn't have access to all four accounts. Most of them would have heard things about Jesus by word of mouth, oral traditions about Jesus. And a good number of them in due time would have received a copy or had read to them one of the gospel accounts here. In due time, under the providence of God, these four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were collected and included in the New Testament canon, the Bible that we have today. And these particular gospels were directed originally at certain people, certain authors, certain subjects. Think of the gospels as four journalists 
who witnessed the same event or events. They would see and hear the same basic facts. But the angle from which they saw it, the personal agenda or ideas that they had, their own recipients to whom they were writing were different. And that would affect their final reporting. And it is of immense value that we have not one, two, or three, but all four of them filling in gaps in our understanding, satisfying our curiosity. In some ways, in all of human history, we have the least excuse to say, I don't know much about Jesus. I'm not sure that there's evidence. Our picture is extensive. Now, let's remember that the gospel writers wrote about things that happened in a very Jewish world, about a very Jewish person named Jesus. He served and lived and died and rose again and ascended in a Jewish context. All up until the time of Jesus, those people sought to somehow satisfy God with their worship and their obedience. And they were looking for a Messiah, even though they were looking with all kinds of distortions. And yet when all was said and done, when they watched, when they saw, when they heard about Jesus, most of them were left with more confusion than when they began. Or better said, they were conflicted about Jesus. Jesus was unavoidable in his life and claims. But Jesus, as we learn from the Gospels, was radically different as Messiah than what most of them expected. And in light of that, in light of the stubbornness of their hearts, the Bible tells us, they ended up rejecting Jesus. Even after he rose from the dead, even after he appeared to hundreds of them, Paul writes, the Jewish people by and large rejected him. Even after the events at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, and the leadership of Peter, and the leadership of Paul from Tarsus, most of the Jews rejected him. They rejected Jesus Christ. It wasn't because those early followers of Jesus detached themselves from Jewish faith, but rather that most Jews pushed them away because they saw Jesus for who he is. Four gospel writers, what about one gospel writer? Luke's gospel. What are some features and highlights of that? Second point in your outline. If you look at the table of contents, if you kind of peruse the gospels, you'll see that Matthew is the longest gospel writer, at least by chapter. But Luke is actually longer, though he only has 24, not 28 chapters. There are 80 more verses in Luke than Matthew. There are 1,000 more words in the original, 2,000 more in our English translations. Luke is indeed the longest of the gospel writers. Luke, the writer of this gospel, is a medical doctor. And his training, his wiring comes out in all kinds of ways. If you read it, even in English, you see that his writing is excellent. It flows well. He's highly educated. And Luke gives particular attention to individuals who would be seen as down and outers or lower on the pecking order in society. In his day, that included women and children and those who were materially poor, those who were ethnic outsiders, those who had a low reputation. This, friends, is the kind of message that really resonates in the day and age in which we live, where we value diversity and equality so highly. This Jesus 
is appealing. Luke includes in his 24 chapters a bunch of human interest stories. He shows the value of human life. Luke's especially fond of telling stories of Jesus healing people, that he was compassionate. One pastor in our day says it like this, the Savior does not skip over people society likes to overlook. He, Jesus, stops. He loves them. He heals them. And he uses them in his kingdom. God has a way of upsetting our categories for his own good. Luke's not just a medical doctor, not just interested in human interest stories. He's also a Gentile. Of all the writers in the New Testament, certainly among the gospel writers, Luke is apparently the only Gentile. He's from Asia Minor, which we would call Turkey today. Paul picked him up in the middle of Paul's missionary journeys to the Gentiles. And Luke was with him on and off. Luke was included in the trip to Jerusalem. He was later included in the trip to Rome. So Luke sees where Paul had gone. Luke had a curious mind and he's able to describe in great detail uh, their sailing and their navigation, uh, items dealing with the human body and so forth. Luke's the author not of one book, but two. This is the first of a two-part series. The first we call the gospel according to Luke, the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke. It's the prequel. But there's actually a sequel. It's what we call Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, maybe even better, the Acts of the Holy Spirit that describe the followers of Jesus, the early church, in light of who he was. Luke wrote both Luke, the gospel, and Acts. Luke is one of three synoptic gospel writers. Synoptic means they saw a common view. There was a similar vision that they saw. And that makes sense. When you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see a number of stories that are essentially the same. But Luke has some material that's unique to him. And praise God he does. Luke has an extended birth narrative. We'll see this in December. And a bit about the early life of Jesus. Luke includes Jesus talking about the Good Samaritan and about the prodigal son, about Zacchaeus, about the road to Emmaus. There are unique things to Luke in our Bibles. There are some stories in Luke that are similar in John as well. But John's focus is on Jesus as the Son of God. Luke's focus is on Jesus as the Son of Man, a rich title with Old Testament implications. In other words, Luke says Jesus is the embodiment of all that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. Our focus this winter, including in December, is on the first part of Luke's gospel. We need to take a look at the book as a whole before we dive into the first four verses there. Take, take your Bible there, Luke chapter 1. You see in the first four verses a prologue, a preface, an introduction. We'll get to that in just a moment. Then Luke in chapters 2, 3, and 4, go ahead and flip through there. You see items about Jesus' birth, descriptions of his childhood, John the Baptist as well. If you get to chapter 4, you see the beginning of his ministry. From chapter 4 in the middle, about verse 14, to chapter 9, about verse 50, we have his Galilean ministry. Jesus goes up to the north of Israel, around the Sea of Galilee, and he is fondly received by the people there. 
They are enraptured by this Jesus who teaches, who heals, who has insight. Luke chapter 9, verse 43 sums up that whole section well. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did. If he was into fame, he should have stayed there. But he didn't. Luke 9, 51, there's an important transition. We read, as the time approached for him, Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He goes from the north of Israel, where he is warmly received and lauded, and begins the slow journey south to Jerusalem, where he meets increasing hostility and opposition. So much so that by the time he gets there, they're not only opposed to him, but they want to kill him. The Jerusalem journey begins in Luke 9, 51 into chapter 19. And it is there before he gets to Jerusalem that he encounters the man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was everything that the people of the day hated. He was a tax collector. He was a swindler. He took their money, they thought. He represented the Romans. If anybody didn't deserve the mercy of God, it was Zacchaeus. But Jesus came, singled him out, to say, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And that is arguably the theme of the book. This gospel is a tender gospel, one in which it is impossible to miss the truth that God loves the sinners Jesus came to save. The last few chapters of Luke, beginning in verse, uh, chapter 19 to chapter 24, are the climactic events in Jerusalem. Arrest, crucifixion, burial, resurrection, appearances, ascension, and so forth. Jesus came not just to live a perfect life, God in the flesh. He came with the mission to die as our substitute and to rise again so that we might live his life and avoid the death we deserve. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is conscious of the Old Testament scriptures. Mark Strauss, a New Testament scholar in our day, says it like this. Luke writes to confirm that Christianity is not a new religion. Rather, it's the fulfillment of God's promises given to Israel in the Old Testament. Jesus is certainly the Jewish Messiah, but he's also the Savior of the whole world. Praise God for that. Jesus has come for a very lost, very diverse world that includes you and me. With that background, we're ready to hear directly from Luke in the first four verses. Point three in your outline, Luke's introduction, fortifying confidence. Luke writes so that we might know who Jesus is. It might be helpful at first to look at these verses in isolation before we put them together as the overview of the book. And in order to do so, let's just ask four of those simple questions. The first is what? Verse one answers the what question. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, Luke writes, which is very different than what the other gospel writers did. Listen here. Here's how Matthew begins his gospel. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the centerpiece, Matthew writes, of the Jewish faith. Or Mark. 
Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament given by God. Or John. Here's how John begins. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the revelation of God. He's God in the flesh. But Luke starts entirely differently. Luke, as one of our pastors said this week, kind of comes in the back door. He sets the context for the person in the life of Jesus, different than the other gospel writers. Luke says there is a tsunami who has rolled through. And the tsunami's name is Jesus. And he's altered the landscape. And I'm here to tell you not only what happened, but what it looks like now for all of you. Jesus is the fulfillment of what was said long ago. If you have the New International Version, it says this, many have undertaken to draw up an account. But if you have the ESV or the CSB, other good English translations, it goes something like this, many have undertaken to compile a narrative. Have you heard that word before? We hear the word narrative a lot in our contemporary world. Narrative is a word that describes an explanation that makes sense of what has happened. There are various narratives to explain history. If you talk to somebody about a political event or a weather occurrence or an economic change or, dare I say, a football game, they will have a narrative to describe not only what happened but why it happened. Sometimes narratives are entertaining, even laughable. For instance, like many of you, I've sought to invest some money into a retirement account, hoping that there will be something there when I arrive and that will stay there during those years. Some of you have invested in a mutual fund or some kind of uh, stock portfolio. Several times a week, I have an app on my phone, and I look and I see, what have the markets done? Have they gone up or have they gone down? And inevitably, there are links on that app to articles that explain why it happened. Up a little or a lot, down a little or a lot. And they say, because of this earnings report, or because of an inflation figure, or a company's initial public offering, or a weather event, or a pandemic change, whatever it is, this is why that has happened. It's a narrative. The narrative gets to a larger reality, which is that there is more than one way to explain history, humanly speaking, to explain what happened. So much of life, even our conversations, even over Thanksgiving, is our attempt to persuade other people to see things the way we do. You can talk about religion or morality or politics or sports or education or economics. And we give a narrative. You may have heard of the word postmodernism in the last couple of decades. It's a, it's a theory about knowledge that has all kinds of flaws, even fatal flaws. But one of the benefits of postmodernism is that it unmasks many of the narratives that are out there. Modernism says that we are all objective and that we can exhaustively discover what is true. Postmodernism says, no, we're all living in our own echo chamber and we all bring biases. 
We are perspectival. We bring a perspective in order to see reality. And of course, that's accurate, and that's Luke's point. Many have attempted, from their perspective, to compile a narrative about the life of Jesus, who he is, why he mattered. And they're not just seeking to inform you, they're seeking to persuade you to reach a certain conclusion. And Luke says, and add me to that number, I'm going to tell you about the life of Jesus, and I'm going to tell you how you ought to respond. The advantage that Matthew, Mark, John, and Luke have is that they were overseen by God and that their account, their narrative, has the divine stamp of approval. God saying, this is true and this is how you should see. Second question, verse 2, from where does Luke get this? Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. There were things fulfilled among us in the life of Jesus, handed down to us about the person of Jesus. Now, Luke, you have to remember, hadn't seen or encountered Jesus directly. He was up in modern-day Turkey. Paul picked him up years later on his missionary journeys. Luke had heard second and third hand the accounts of the eyewitnesses. But Luke says, I've done my history homework. And if you go down a level or a layer or two, you will find that I'm relying on eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus Christ. In many ways, Luke is like us. He had to rely on the testimony of people he deemed credible before he responded to their claims. And Luke says his sources were eyewitnesses. That's a word very important at the beginning of Luke and used very sparingly, actually, in the Bible. Luke is saying, what I'm presenting to you is not the product of hearsay. It's the product of research. There were events that happened. There were people who saw the miracles, the teaching, the crucifixion, the resurrection, who, who were witnesses of the Jesus who lived, died, and rose again. And they are primary sources, not secondary reporters, because the events of Jesus' life didn't occur in a corner. You know as well as I do, even in our day, that in terms of legal testimony, an eyewitness has special credibility. They saw or heard what happened. In recent weeks, you and I have followed or been followed by several notable stories in our own country regarding criminal trials. And eyewitness testimony carried great weight. In fact, unique in history almost, in recent decades and in our part of the world, it seems that everything can be recorded for what we hear and what we see. That's like eyewitness testimony that we personally can access, that the nation can see, that a jury can watch. And to Luke, eyewitnesses were a big deal. Verse 3, third question, how? With this in mind, since I myself, Luke writing, have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. First, Luke addresses what, then from where, now how. And two realities stand out 
in Luke's assessment of Jesus's life. First, he had done historical investigation and done it thoroughly. Luke didn't just piece together a few statements, concoct a story, get a three-second video clip and see, say, there's Jesus. He didn't just find a few people who had nice things to say about Jesus and say, see, there it is. Luke did his research. Luke investigated. Luke was a detective. He carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Remember, Luke was a doctor, a good doctor. He had attention to detail. And like a good physician, he knew that a correct diagnosis was very important for a good prognosis. He carried that into history. He had attention to detail. He realized that there may be competing facts or explanations, and he needed to write a narrative that would stand the test of time and the investigation of others. One writer said, we should not think of Luke as a student locked up in a library, especially since written material was so rare in the ancient world. No, Luke was an inquiring student who took in whatever he could, oral and written. Luke knew inquiring minds want to know, and he needed to figure out what actually happened. He wanted to get to the bottom of the life of Jesus. Secondly, also connected to verse 3, Luke attempted to put together an orderly account. Look at your Bibles there. An orderly account. An orderly sequence, it says in the CSB translation. And to be honest, we don't know exactly what Luke meant here. He could have meant one of several things. He could have meant a chronological order. That is, certain things happened over the course of time. And he would write what happened here with Jesus and when days or weeks or months passed by here and here and here. The problem is, if we look at Luke, if we look at the other gospel writers, there were times in which they took things out of order chronologically, remember, because they were writing with a certain purpose. Things that were true that actually happened, but they were writing a story about Jesus. Luke could have meant that. Or a geographic order. Remember we said Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was in the area of Jerusalem. He went up later to the Sea of Galilee, taught, did miracles, was warmly received, and then came back down or south to Jerusalem where he was opposed and later killed. There's a certain geographic order. Maybe that's what Luke meant. Luke could have meant a dramatic order, a drama. We know how dramas or stories work. There's, first of all, the setting and the characters. There's plot development and some kind of tension or conflict. There's a climax and a resolution of the story. We see that in Jesus' life, the height of his popularity, the depth of his popularity, opposition. Luke could have written in that order. He could have written in theological order. God prepared the law. He chose a people. He saw their failure. He sent his son who lived a perfect life, died a death as our substitute, rose again. Luke could have ordered this theologically. Maybe that's what he meant. But all of these potential orderings of Luke all beg the same question, and that is why is Luke writing and writing like this? And he answers that in verse 4. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke's whole purpose here is simple yet profound. 
He knows that his readers then and now have heard lots of things about Jesus. Maybe tidbits, maybe whole stories or sections of his life. But he says, I want you to know, I want you to have confidence that you know who Jesus is. He writes specifically to Theophilus. We don't know much about this man. A couple of things. Number one, he had an interesting name. It means lover of God or loved by God. And also Theophilus was in all likelihood Greek in background. So he only had piecemeal information about Jesus. Luke wanted Theophilus to fill out the story, to understand the big picture so that he could respond in faith. And Luke wants the same thing for you and for me. He wants us to have sufficient information so that we can be persuaded that this Jesus is who he said he is. Let's face it, everyone has faith. Everyone has faith. Every one of us believes all kinds of things from all kinds of people. But the real question is, what is the quality of the object of your faith? And do you have confidence in proclaiming that? Do you have certainty? Luke says you can, and I want you to have it. Pastor in our day, Thabiti Anyabwili was a cynic. But when he investigated the stories of Jesus, he realized that he could have a biblical faith, a historical faith, a verifiable faith. There was evidence for Jesus as he claimed. He said Christianity can be tested. And because it can be tested, it can be trusted. Do you believe that? Luke writes 24 chapters of historically verifiable claims. Luke writes so that Theophilus and all the others, including you and me, could find reliability in his account of Jesus. Luke writes so that we would believe what the apostles taught, that we would see that Jesus was the fulfillment, that we would go with the message to the nations. Luke wants us to hear the facts, he wants us to know the person, and he wants us to entrust ourselves to God who's revealed himself in Jesus. Not a casual acquaintance, which will never save anyone, but a passionate trust and allegiance that will save every time, which raises the unavoidable question, what to do with Jesus. Luke writes not as a biographer, but as an evangelist, so that we would respond. Friends, Christian faith has no fear of your investigation. The Bible has nothing to hide. Believe it only if it has credibility. And your objections begin to subside as you see that it does. But by all means, read the Bible. Study the Bible. Test the Bible. Ask questions of the Bible. And when you see its level of credibility, see the person at the center of it named Jesus, the one Luke writes about. And from one investigator to another, from the investigation of Luke to ours, I think you'll be thrilled with what you find.
Mark Strauss, New Testament scholar of our day, said it well. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This statement epitomizes Luke's central theme. With the coming of Jesus the Messiah, God's end-time salvation has arrived. It is available to all who respond in faith, whatever their past life, whatever their social status, whatever their ethnicity. And that includes every last one of us. This is good news for the world. This is good news for everyone. This is great news, especially for those who feel themselves left out, cast aside at the bottom end of the pecking order of life, that Jesus sees you, and he came for you too. The Savior has arrived. Luke says, check him out. And here's the evidence. And when you see it, I think you'll be inclined to embrace him, to align your life with him, because God is not only with you, he's for you. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a giving God, and we thank you that you came and took on flesh and blood in the person of Jesus Christ to walk in front of us, to let us see and hear and touch you, to observe what God in the flesh would do. Thank you for the accounts we have in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, John, and in our case, especially Luke. And I pray that his testimony of the life of Jesus would be riveting to us and would call us to respond in lasting faith. Thank you, God, for this season, for the chance to look deeply at Jesus as a baby, as a boy, as a man, as a teacher, as a prophet, as a savior, as Lord. May we respond appropriately and with enthusiasm to what you have shown us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.